everyone. Welcome back. It's so good to have you here. It's an early morning in Thailand right now, and we have another guest to present to you. This is going to be a really exciting conversation because it's actually something that we haven't talked about uh, directly, addressed directly. So I think this is such valuable content. We have a really wonderful person to have this conversation with. Um, so let's get started. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Dr. Anna Redman. She's a trained clinical psychologist with specialties in health psychology, chronic pain management, and she is board certified in biofeedback as well. She has over a decade of experience listening to women, their chronic pain stories, and moving them to a path of recovery. Today, she comes to us as a chronic pain educator who has honed the most impactful education for women to view their pain through a new lens changing their behaviors and reshape their lives to match what they really want. With education, she helps women dive deeper than a diagnosis in their symptoms to connect with themselves on a heart and brain level so they can stop fighting with their bodies and design a life that is bigger than their pain. So welcome. It's so wonderful to have you here chatting with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been following you and enjoying all of your content. So I'm very honored to be sitting here with you. Thank you so much. We also have been following you. It's so amazing to, to network with and connect with different creators. And just like, um, I feel like it's a treat. It's like this free daily uh, education, inspiration, encouragement. And yeah, I just love, we love what you're doing. So mm -hmm. super glad you're here so today. Right back at you. Thank you so much. Mm. Well, we'd love to hear um, kind of the tagline for our podcast is like your story matters. And we'd love to hear um, you kind of bring us through your story. And so much of what we do uh, as humans when our jobs are about our passion is like connected to our story. And um, that's definitely the case for us. And we we know that's the case for you too. So yeah, just take us through your story and we'd love to hear it. Sure. Thank you. I actually had to get used to telling my story when they train you as a therapist, telling your personal story is not usually part of that picture. Right. Um, but I, I think in this case, it's really important. Um, and I always like to start by saying that in no way do I claim to have someone else's pain, their same pain experience. Um, because honestly, in fact, most of the people I encountered along the way have had pain for five, 10, 20 years, decades. And so mm -hmm. from a time perspective, I'm really just a sliver of that. Um, but I do believe that my story highlights what so many people experience right at the outset of their chronic pain journey. So um, I, I talk a bit about that, what that looks like for me, what I wish my provider had done differently, and then kind of where things went from there. Um, but it started like most people, you know, I, I looked to the medical system for answers. I was having this neck pain that just wouldn't go away. I went to my primary care doctor, um, told her about my neck pain. She ordered x-rays and MRI. I went to her office for the results. And so she had my imaging up on her computer screen. And then she had the spine model and explained that I had a bulging disc in my neck and exactly what that was. Um, she thought maybe it was a whiplash I experienced while trying to learn how to snowboard as an adult. 
um, maybe my posture at work or certain weak muscles in my body. And she referred me to a physical therapist. So I saw, and I was, I was a pain psychologist on a pain team. So I, I kind of had these connections and I saw several physicians and a physical therapist and I tried all of the things. Um, and so here's where language really comes in and is important. I just want to point out this part of my story where one, she told me that if my pain didn't resolve, that I might consider speaking with a spine surgeon. And so talk about fear inducing Ooh, uh, spine yeah. surgeons, so just those words, right? And so then I'm very fearful of this diagnosis she's just given me, which even just the names of some of these diagnoses can trigger that sometimes. Yeah. And second, so when I heard those words bulging disc from my primary care doctor as she's holding up the spine and I've got this imaging on the screen, um, you know, I was immediately awash in fear and I just couldn't get that image of my bulging disc out of my mind, sort of this faulty tissue in my body that would never get better and could worsen with age. And so even though I was a pain psychologist, I felt myself jumping to the worst case scenarios um, and just this yeah. one visit instilled so much fear in me about my body. Mm. Um, and I think for a lot of people with chronic pain, this, this whole scenario where we present to our provider's office, we get the, the tests, the diagnoses, the scans, um, but there's usually little acknowledgement of anything else, and this is so common. And so what's happening here is that the biomedical model is really set in place. So we learn pain is due to some sort of tissue damage or something's wrong physically in the body. The language is often fear-inducing. Um, the providers focusing on fixing, you know, in my case, the bad disc and a patient, then, you know, they're looking for the meta to the medical system for answers, hearing there are things to try. And so then they hope that the treatment or the fix will make it go away. Patients spend years of appointments, labs, tests, interventions, um, procedures, surgeries, physical therapy, all of these things often with disappointing results because there isn't one fix or one thing that consistently cures chronic pain for all people. Um, and also because pain isn't just a physical or a biomedical thing, especially after someone's had it for more than a few, uh, more than a few months, pain is always biopsychosocial and mm. lives in the overlap of a person's unique biological, psychological, and social factors. And so when we go to the doctor and they approach it strictly physical or in a strictly medical way, then what happens when the normal treatments don't work? Like I'm a doer and I'll do anything my doctors tell me to do, but then what does that mean if they don't work? Or what happens when we look at my imaging and there's nothing there to say why I have pain? And so what happens is, and what it felt like for me is that patients are left to feel invalidated marginalized, like their pain isn't real, like they're a burden. Um, and this is just, this just, this is just the one, just one visit. Right. And then, um, what yeah. came from that one visit? Um, and you know, another thing that I, so this is the part where they, um, that I had to get used to telling, like, so what else was happening in my life at the time, mm -hmm. the context, because context is important. Um, I had this great job on paper um, it was fast paced. It was challenging. I worked with all kinds of really talented people in a large medical system, but it wasn't a good match for me. Mm. It felt toxic at times. Um, I was seeing patient after patient pushing past my limits. I was a perfectionist, a people pleaser. 
I push through all of my physical symptoms. And as this comes as no surprise to anyone that I had, I was exhausted, compassion fatigue, early signs of burnout, all of these things. I was just um, meeting every symptom, <laughs> every symptom that you would need to diagnose these things. Um, mm my energy really started to get damp tamped down by the daily stressors of this system. Um, I was kind of shrinking who I was to maintain the status quo. Be I was becoming more passive than is typical for me. Mm -hmm. um, and so the impact of stress on my body was really undeniable. So I was having a hard time breathing. I was having joint pain. I was still having this neck pain. My brain was foggy. I was so tired. And the other things going on, I got married. I had two kids close together. I had all these life changes. And I'm just sharing all of this to highlight that that pain isn't like just occurring all by itself. It's occurring in some context of someone's life and everything they have going on. Absolutely. And, and this set my this set the stage for my pain to become chronic because the nervous system can only stay turned on for so long before it gets burned out. And so, I don't know, maybe I hurt myself snowboarding. I have no idea, but the context I think was in all of these things that were happening in hindsight were the roots to my pain becoming chronic. And the crazy yeah. thing is that none of my providers asked me about the, like anything but the physical component. So they never asked me about, you know, what was I thinking about my diagnosis? How was I fearing it? Was I avoiding my favorite activities? Was I feeling fulfilled, engaging? in my relationships. And so I started to lose faith in like this, the healthcare system that I worked in, the approach as a psychologist that I was using, I was doing a lot of CBT, which is um, very effective, but it felt like there was this missing piece like these, I mean, also it was trying to do it on myself. So maybe that's not the way to go, but um, you know, there, there was something missing for me. Right. Um, Cause I just had all of this fear. So I was losing faith in this expertise that I had spent all of this time pursuing. Um, you know, and so I, what I often share here is just what I wish my doctor had told me. So I wish she had told me that 80 to 90% of cases involving bulging discs actually heal within two to four months. So imagine if she had told me that. Um, I wish she had told me that disc bulges are one of the most common findings seen on imaging. Um, and they're actually found pretty commonly in people with and without back pain. So 40% of people my age, if they had imaging done and had no pain symptoms at all, they would actually probably have this on their imaging too. Um, so some of these imaging findings are incidental. They're just normal signs of aging, kind of like wrinkles and gray hair. We all get them, but they don't cause problems for all of us. Um, and what if she had told me just don't, don't fear, we will get through this, you know, all of these yeah. things. Um, because when I tried all of the fixes they suggested and nothing worked, I had a ton of fear and I started to feel like a burden for this, the fact that I had this pain that wouldn't go away. Um, and you know, so that's kind of, that's kind of the story and the way that I pulled out of it. I think it's important to say that it's not overnight. There is no magic wand for pain. Um, I started working a new position at this hospital with a physical and occupational therapist who, um, I think they're really leading the charge on some of this education that's often missing in healthcare visits. Um, they were doing a lot with 
management of your energy throughout the day and also um, pain neuroscience education. So we were running a pain program, all of us together. And so I was like sort of learning from them as I was, we were treating patients together. And wow. when we started providing education about the science, about how pain works to help people kind of reduce threats, threat of pain in their everyday moments, this is where we really saw people change. So we listened to people, the language, um, trying to teach them how to shift their perspective. And so we were seeing in real time people viewing their pain through a different lens, um, forming new connections in their brains, and then kind of transforming these everyday moments into experiences that sent safety messages to their brain or healed them. And so along the way, I started to think about my pain less and I started to experience it less. Um, yeah. and, I, and I think in this sort of um, quest for a solution and discovery, I learned something really important that when we approach our bodies with curiosity rather mm -hmm. than fear or when we can neutralize the fear, then everything changes. And so my mission, you know, I'm not um, practicing as a therapist right now. I'm sort of, you know, I loved the education piece. And so my mission now is really to help women cross that bridge or at least take the mm -hmm. first steps with education. Um, this education, they're not really getting in their typical treatment appointments. Yeah. Um, so that's sort of from start to finish along the way. And um, I imagine it's really similar to what many people experience at the beginning. And it, this can go on for decades. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's an amazing, amazing story. Um, I just, before I, I'm like shocked at you were doing this, you were first introduced to this and then became part of um, more, more accurate pain science in a conventional medical model like with a PT and an OT and you, you were helping patients in, in a hospital setting or some type of outpatient setting. Yeah. So we were at a VA, which meant we had a little bit more flexibility with the types of programming that we could offer. Okay. Um, wow. We didn't have the same limitations as other medical settings with managed care. So we were able, basically we were able to put together a, an interdisciplinary program for patients based on the most updated pain science in each of our um, mm -hmm. disciplines yes. and putting that yeah. together. And it was really good. It was so good. We were seeing people change their lives in real time. Um, but the problem was that, it, you know, not everybody's appropriate uh, or ready for a program like that. And I think we yeah. were seeing, you know, and, and it was just us and we can't do that with 50 people at a time. So we would only see eight eight patients every 12 weeks or so. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I, and I think there's a portion of that education that everyone with pain deserves to know. And sort of that's my mission is just to get that out into the world. Um, and there are other people, other voices as well, trying to do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I'd imagine um, veterans have a lot of chronic pain from many different reasons. But as you're saying, like, but when there's also fear combined with that pain, and if you have PTSD, um, if you've seen any action, then there's going to be that com that overlay of there's a wound and there's trauma mm -hmm. and there's fear. And if you have PTSD, then you're kind of in that state of fear, um, which perpetuates what I'm hearing you say, it perpetuates that 
that can perpetuate that pain, correct? Oh, absolutely. And yeah. especially, I mean, uh, and we can, we can talk about sort of the basic brain science of pain, mm -hmm. um, but the, regardless of any other diagnoses, PTSD or trauma, just the presence of threat around pain. Sure. Will always keep it going and it will always make your nervous system more sensitive and over time it learns pain and creates it more easily and more often but wow. then when you add in something like a history of trauma and the nervous system is already sensitive or ptsd uh if you think about it ptsd and pain can both be maintained by avoidance mm -hmm. yeah right sure it keeps the cycle of ptsd going but it also keeps it so if people are avoiding certain movements, certain activities, it just makes the fear that much greater and it just keeps it going. So there's actually this sort of mutual maintenance uh, when this, those two things are happening together. Okay. So yeah. um, I'm sure you know, I, John, Dr. John Sarno, his research, his book. Okay. That's when I first heard, that's the person I first heard about chronic pain and the crossover of fear and emotions and um i remember first starting to learn about um the crossover of like trauma and um emotional suppression and pain um was when i watched a documentary by dr sarno and it and we work a lot with chronic illness and i noticed the crossover of chronic illness with the pain was a lot of it is like emotional suppression um avoidance i think you, you said like we start avoiding activities and avoiding um uh, this beliefs or feeling like something's wrong I, I see that hugely in the chronic illness a lot of um, sensitivities or allergies will come up because you have a you have a reaction and your brain whatever neurons fire together wire together so it's like oh i didn't feel good when i did this okay so now your brain's to protect you says this is bad so don't do it again if, if you think about an acute someone coming in with an acute injury right acute mm -hmm. pain is pain that's lasting usually between zero and six months and anything okay. beyond that would be considered chronic pain and when you think about those early stages of pain there are three really important risk factors for it becoming chronic. And I think this, this is kind of what you're talking about and where some of the overlap lies. So there's poor early education across the board with so many chronic issues, yeah. chronic illnesses. Um, but when an acute injury isn't adequately treated over time or someone's not educated, right? So I'm describing my story and what if there had been just this, this neuroscience education? And when that happens, the brain and the nervous system because the pain's continuing, they get better at creating the pain experience. So like you were describing, um, you know, the more it happens, the more easily it's produced. Um, the second thing is that fear, pain catastrophizing, which is worst case scenario, thinking about pain and anxiety around pain, these continue to trigger that fight or flight response in our body and mm. everything that comes with that. So that sustains the pain experience as well. Mm. And then the third thing is hypervigilance of pain sensations. So because this wires the pain response deeper and deeper into our neuro neural pathways. And, you know, and we can get into the kind of the brain science of pain sort of the basic, cause that might help too, but yeah. your brain's trying to protect you 
but at some point that protection system or alarm system is becoming too sensitive. It's yeah. overprotective. And then it's creating pain when it's no longer helpful for you, but just mm -hmm. because it learned to do that. It learned mm -hmm. to generalize, you know, one pain situation to many and everything becomes so sensitive. I've had patients tell me that the wind blowing on their body hurts. Mm -hmm. That's how sensitive this can all become and how learned pain can become in our, in our bodies. Wow. Yeah. We use the um, analogy, I can't remember where we first heard it, but of like a car alarm and you want a car alarm to go off when someone's breaking into your car, but you don't want a car alarm to go off when a butterfly flies past it or a leaf falls on it. And that, that sensitization, um, it happens in the body, the way you're describing of where every sensory stimuli or every, um, every it can become any engagement as a human can become seen as threatening to the body in such a sensitized state. And then you are feeling um, pain or symptoms with, with every interaction and, and getting the car uh, alarm resensitized like appropriately. You don't want it desensitized because then it won't protect you when it needs to, but you want it like a balanced um, sens sensitization and that, that analogy is just like, oh, okay. People really can understand that, that balance is the key in so many parts of life. So why would it also not be the key with how our body, how our nervous system um, uses uh, our, our whole very complex um, processes to, to determine what is uh, safe, what is not safe and how that can just get um, get off kilter and cause a lot of, a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We use the same analogy for pain. It's okay. uh, Yay. Actually, yeah. Um, mm. I don't know if it would be helpful to go into that a little bit with chronic pain. Do you want me to? Absolutely. Talk to you? Um, you know, for years we thought of pain as a measure of tissue damage, like mm. the, the worst, uh, the worse the burn is, the more pain we will have. Sure. Um, but we know that that's not true, right? Like paper cuts hurt a lot. Um, a, an incision twice as deep doesn't hurt twice as much. There, It's not just physically, like a physical phenomenon, right? So in, instead, we now think of pain as this sophisticated and complicated protective mechanism, a threat detection system that's based on our need to, our evolutionary need to survive. And it's actually really important. It's a signal for guiding our behavior. It motivates us to take action to keep, our, keep ourselves safe. So um, it, it's the thing that keeps us from picking up groceries with a broken arm or removing our, our hand from a hot stove before we get burned really badly. And when we're navigating the world, basically we're doing two things. We're, we tend to look toward rewards and we tend to avoid or look away from threat. And our our threat detection system helps us do this. So to work well and keep us alive, it has to be able to predict to some degree, right? right. So if it wasn't doing that, or at least trying to, we would be reacting to every perceived threat or stressor around us. And that's just not sustainable for our bodies. So it's our brain's job to predict where the threats are. We know it's hard to predict. Uh, none of us have crystal balls. We know how poor we are at actually predicting sometimes. Um, and similarly, our pain prediction system can be off base sometimes. And the brain has this internal model of 
um, you know, how much pain it's expecting during any particular moment or experience. And it also receives input and signals from our body. And so the experience of pain is basically a combination of what the brain is expecting plus the signals it's receiving from the body. So this is kind of how it works. And this is uh, what you were talking about with the car alarm. So it's basically an alarm system. It's made up of the brain, the spinal cord, nerves, and sensory receptors or danger detectors. And these danger detectors are distributed all over our bodies. They act as the eyes of a, the brain and it's the brain's job to protect us. And so these danger messages send Mess, danger, mess, uh, danger detectors or receptors send messages from the affected area of your body. So if I step on a nail, it sends a message from my foot through my spinal cord to my brain. And then my brain using all of the information that it has, which is so much, it could be past experiences, memories, emotions, trust, feelings of safety, what our senses are doing at the time. Um, you, the brain using this information will produce pain if it thinks we need to be protected. Hmm. And so I think this knowledge of just that sentence, giving someone that knowledge, which most, most people don't realize, it can really hmm. neutralize the pain for them because it's, it's saying, look, this process is happening in your body. It's supposed to be protecting you, but something's going awry. So hmm. what I'm saying is that, you know, the, at the center of what drives continued pain is how threatening we think the pain is. Yeah. Depending on how much threat we perceive, it can drive avoidance, depression, anxiety, distress, and more pain. But when pain is perceived to be low threat, we can escape from that loop or that cycle of fear, avoidance, and pain. And you know, when someone's had pain for six months or years, you know, usually there's some nervous system involvement there because our brain's always trying to play detective trying to figure out what's happening in the world in our bodies it's basically a best guess scenario of of the threat detection system trying to figure out how to protect us and sometimes the threat detection system suggests injury danger or threat inaccurately and when predictions or beliefs about threat are repeated over and over they become stronger they become more resistant to change they become learned by our nervous system like a reflex and pain is produced more readily, more easily. It doesn't take much of a trigger to set it off. And so your nervous system has learned to stay in high threat mode. Your brain has become overprotective and it keeps pain going. Hmm. And so the important piece here, and so I guess listeners, if you're multitasking, you know, come back to this because if your brain believes that there is a threat that makes you vulnerable, and that could be as simple as the MRI your doctor just explained to you, it will protect you by creating pain. And when the brain believes that you are safe, it won't create pain to protect you. Mm. And so there's a lot to say about that. I, I go into it in more detail. Um, I'm doing one more webinar in December that's free because this is kind of the piece that I think everyone should be able to understand. And they're just not getting it in their typical appointments. Yeah. Mm. You explained that so well. And so well. I'm thinking of like, um, so I, I have a history of chronic pain and um, that is one area that I'm still recovering from. Um, a lot of my, I came into the neuroscience um, brain rewiring world with over 70 symptoms and it's been quite the journey of, of rewiring so much and um, it's been remarkable. And I, I have a lot of a personal experience with what you're describing and you just describe it so well and 
the empowerment of the education, uh, it's hard to, to state how, how uh, yeah, empowering, it's the only word I can think of, to know what's happening. I remember one time I was talking to my friends about um, my pain, which uh, I've had chronic abdominal pain, chronic joint pain, uh, chronic headaches, um, neck, back, um, and you know, those are the main ones. So I remember telling a friend before any of this for my own journey, um, just explaining how terrifying it is to feel the oppressive emotions once the pain came. And I didn't have words to, to even understand what was happening, right? I just knew, so the pain comes and then there's the tear and the disappointment and the despair and the discouragement, and then the behaviors that follow those emotions, and this vicious cycle that just felt so oppressive and so um, disempowering. And looking back, like that, I was in that that trauma loop, or that limbic loop, or that pain loop. It, it was it was such a patterned place. And so, part of my recovery that I'm still walking out has been me learning. Um, how to signal safety and how to disrupt that loop and, and in a sense tolerate the pain when it comes as a sensation and not as a this is crippling this is life threatening like cognitively I think I knew I think a lot of people know cognitively it's not life threatening especially once you know they've ruled out cancer or you know something that is life threatening um, but emotionally my felt experience was not that it wasn't life-threatening it felt life-threatening to my body and so changing my orientation with my emotions that are connected to the pain has been really really important and I'll say you probably see this with your with the people you work with it's like it's that's probably the hardest part because it's so natural to feel threat when your body feels pain and for that to just blossom not that's not the right word to just um Mushroom take over yeah um it's a lot it's really challenging but it is possible but that pain cycle you're describing is so common and it's so easy to fall into so you know when we would work with people in this program we were like you have to understand this cycle because you will find yourself sometimes falling back into it it's so easy right because it's hard not to view pain as threatening it impacts our lives so much but the the cycle is really important to understand and it's kind of a downer right like it's really easy for us to fall in the cycle but I the good thing about the cycle I think is that there's actually all of these places within that cycle that we can break it hmm. whether that's hmm. cognitions emotions behaviors um there's there's so many education there's so many places to break the cycle and if you can equip people with the right education and the right tools they can maybe they'll fall back into it but they can always come back out of it or maybe yeah, they sure. and, and I think um you know for a long time a lot of the treatments for chronic pain uh focused on helping people accept pain and manage day to day I think there's a lot of really great science coming out and treatments that are helping patients overcome their pain but it's important again to remember that pain isn't this the only thing occurring there's a context in which these symptoms happen and that's why it's important to 
understand that cycle and know how to come out of it because maybe a stressful, maybe a stressful time of life will bring it back or maybe a new injury of a new kind will bring it back. So it's always, you know, that journey can look different for everybody, but that's Mm -hmm. why that cycle you brought up is it's so important to understand that. So I got a question that I think might be helpful for listeners. Um, Definitely helpful for me because like somatic pain or emotional suppression pain that kind of, that kind of makes more sense to me. or I guess I can understand it better, but when there's like an injury, so I'll take for me, for example, <laughs> so like um, a chronic injury that keeps on coming up. Um, I was told I tore my groin when I was like 19 years old. It was very painful. It took a long time to heal, um, but even when it didn't hurt, it would still get locked up. Um, and then it would get hurt easily. And so um, it just, it gets, I feel like anytime I run, I just like I pull my groin. Um, I, I injured it like four months ago again. And it's not, it seems like it's staying around a little bit longer this time. And so like, is there a difference? Like I can see that it could be like stress. It could be like, um, stuck wiring is it if there's like structural damage is that different for pain wise like like yeah I mean or is there overlap like it's been 20 years should it still be causing issues or so I know as we get older also like we feel things a little bit more but also that is that a wiring I don't I mean um so we, just for our listeners and for me, like as a lot of us have dealt with stuff growing up and if it sticks with us, what is, I know you can't say like, it's always this or always this, but I just like to hear you speak on that a little bit. You know, I think there's a, a lot of people that would say pain is pain, whether it's a groin injury, um, you know, a disc bulge, degenerative disc disease, fibromyalgia, pain is pain. And over, and, and most tissues in the body heal within three to six months. Mm -hmm. And so they would say that beyond that, what's maintaining your pain is not damaged tissue, or at least not that by itself. And so we, you know, factors that are known to be associated with, with pain include physical, so the history of the groin injury, psychological and social area, uh, social factors as well. And so we would look at sort of the context of which this keeps coming back. But uh, I think the thing that I wanted to say, which maybe is gonna be more black and white than you what you expected, that regardless, pain is always coming from the brain. Hmm. Because you could have this groin pain and never have had an actual tear diagnosed or you know i don't know right. what the, you know the, there might have been nothing on your imaging yeah or there might have been something on your imaging and then now it's healed if we looked back at it right, right? and you could have you could have this uh groin um you know i don't know how that shows up on imaging but like you and i could have the same injury 
the same imaging and you would have no pain. You could have no pain at all. And I could have severe pain out of this world. So mm. there's too many, too many things about pain that make it more complicated than sure. just an injury. Yeah. Uh, and that's because it's created by the brain. And maybe there are these moments where the brain is remembering, you know, mm -hmm. and it's trying to protect you. Do have you guys ever heard of Lorimer Mosley? Mm -hmm. I haven't. So the, the, pain education group that I love to follow is called the NOI group. Um, and there, there's one guy in particular, Laura Mosley. he's in Australia. He's a physical therapist and a researcher and he's funny and he's charming and I'm a total groupie and I have followed him to like <laughs> a conference. But anyway, never heard of him. I hope he never hears me talk about him. Like, but anyway, he uh, so he's he's got all these great YouTube videos and he's funny. So he tells these funny stories that patients can relate to in these metaphors. But one of the stories he tells, and I don't know if this will help you, is that um, he tells a story about how he was going on a walk, a hike with a friend. Beautiful day. They're chatting. They're walking. And then he feels something brush against his ankle. His brain is like, well, we're walking around here and it's kind of hikey. So it's probably just a scratch from a twig. They sit down a few hours later for lunch and he looks down and they realize he's been bitten by a poisonous snake. His brain is like, whoa, you were bitten by a snake. He experiences tons of pain. He goes to the you know, hospital is treated and he's fine. So three months later or whatever, he's on a walk, same friend, same place, beautiful day. They're chatting. He feels a little something on his ankle and his brain remembers and his brain says, whoa, last time we were here, we got bit by a snake. Let's make sure you feel a ton of pain. So you like look at your ankle this time. And he looks down at his ankle and it was just a, a scratch from a twig. Hmm. And so, he, you know, and it, he tells the story in a much funnier and more charming way than I did but I think you know context is really important yeah. the protectiveness of our brain and there's no there's no you know magic wand like I said for pain so the brain remembers the brain's always mm -hmm. going to try to protect you and so I think sometimes people can be feeling better and then there's still that little part of the brain that remembers right mm -hmm. it takes a long yeah. time to get rid of those um, yeah. you know, pathways yeah, because like, as I re like, quote unquote, re-injure it, um, it's always like during sports or something. So it's like, oh yeah, of course I did. And so it makes sense, but like, it's not like this, it doesn't seem to be something like drastic, right? Like, like when I first injured it. So that, that makes a lot of sense that my body's more sensitive to it. Um, so and also- re-injure it. I should say sometimes right. that people can have acute pain on top of their chronic, right? And perhaps you did re-injure it and that's a different, you know, kind of a, you should get treatment and right. rule out any red flags of things, right. but yeah. Right. Um, and, but I've also had experiences where I remember like playing sports, diving and having a cut up my knee and not knowing it until somebody told me, like I had no pain, yeah. um, didn't even know I was cut, but like blood's crushing down my leg. And, and like, someone's like, you're cut. I'm like, oh, and so like, like you said, the pain is pain. If I knew, like, I've also been a couple other times and known it and like, oh, that hurts. But that one, I didn't feel it until somebody brought attention to it, which is interesting. Yes, pain is tricky. Pain yeah. is tricky. If your brain doesn't it's think tricky. it needs to protect you in that moment. It won't. Exactly. Yep. Um, That's fascinating. I, the, the video, the story you just told of um, the funny Australian guy that I'm going to look up. <laughs> um, I 
um, this this type of scenario has played out so many times. And I'm sure as listeners are are hearing this, they're like, oh my gosh, because like you said, it pain seen in such this black and white mechanistic way. And it's just not, it is yeah. so, I like how you use the word sophisticated. Yeah. Um, and while it, while it drives us crazy uh, when it becomes a problem, it, we can like kind of be in awe of how incredibly non-simplistic this process is. Um, I got diagnosed. Right. It's remarkable. Um, so this was several years ago. I got a diagnosis of Lyme disease and I was in upstate New York and we had met many people that had gone on to develop like a chronic Lyme um, presentation and years and years of suffering. And so I was very, I had become very aware of what Lyme could do long-term and was, was very fearful of it for sure. But this was in the middle of my chronic illness, um, trying to figure out what was going on, looking for diagnoses. And I remember this day, I'll never forget it. I got, I heard back from my doctor and the test results had come back and I had tested positive for Lyme. And, um, I remember telling Luke that night in, in bed, like, okay, the results are back. I do have it. And the leg pain. So I had had some joint pain. That was why I got tested um, on and off. But, but what happened that night, I felt like, and this is a bit of a trigger warning. Um, I'm using strong language. I felt like my legs were breaking. And the pain was so profoundly intense. Like I couldn't even, I just wanted to squeeze them or I needed the pain to be contained or stopped somehow because um, my legs were, and not even joint, just like bone marrow pain, just incredible amounts of pain. And in the middle of it, I had no concept that my fear was creating this pain. I, I didn't know. So of course, because I didn't know that I was terrified. Like what is happening? It's yeah, so bad. Sure. Like, and I'm a, I was an ER nurse, so I wasn't going to like run to the ER. Cause that's not what ER nurses do. But if I wasn't, I would have been like, something is absolutely wrong. I need immediate medical attention. And you know, that, that would have crossed my mind because it felt so significant. So looking back on it in hindsight, I'm like, that is remarkable how much pain, the level of pain that was produced with a diagnosis, just like that. Yeah. Remarkable. You, know you probably hear these stories a lot. Yeah, it was so Sorry. funny. So I I went to a doctor because, you know, I I still, it's not like my neck pain is cured forever. Sometimes it comes back and um, I, we moved here to San Diego and I wanted to find a provider just so I knew I had a place to go where I could get acupuncture or physical therapy or whatever, um, because yeah. managing pain, I'm not swinging the whole other side of the spectrum either. Chronic pain is still about the physical management too. Mm -hmm. um, and when I got there, the first thing before I even met with the doctor, they wanted to do scans of my neck and my back. And so I go in the scan room and I'm trying not to be like the patient who's causing issues for their protocol. <laughs> And I'm about to lay down or whatever. And I just said, yeah, you know what? I don't, I don't want a scan right now. I'd rather talk to the doctor first because I didn't want that to happen. What you described. I didn't want them to incidentally find like, who yes. knows what's happening as my, uh, my body yeah. ages. If I have right. as much degeneration in my spine as I do gray hairs on my head, like 
that would have been a really bad day. And I told the doctor that, and she, you know, she's like, I totally get it. That's fine. You're not having any, there are no red flags here. You know, she asked me some questions. She said, there's, we don't need to do imaging. It's okay. And yeah. but that was exactly why, because I didn't want that. I didn't want to know if I didn't yeah. need to know. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's just a great also word for like advocating for yourself. Um, yeah. Like in this, in your journey, it's, yes, we want to listen to professionals, but there's also knowing what you need to know and knowing what's good for you and knowing what's helpful for you and what's not helpful for you. Would you agree with that? Oh, totally. And I think people don't, I mean, I think a lot of people would have gone in and not realized that they don't have to get. Exactly. But the other thing that's on my mind too, is, you know, I'm, I'm so sorry to hear you've struggled with this groin pain over the years and a Lyme, Lyme diagnosis must've been so, um, you know, like, like life-changing in a negative way for a while. And like these, um, symptoms that you had, they sound really hard, but we're the three of us are sitting here. We've all had chronic pain. It's coming for all of us. It's just, you know, part of life. We will all experience pain to some degree. Your provider, you know, for the listeners, your providers have chronic pain too. It's not, it doesn't just happen to certain kinds of people. It, right. It's so common and we should kind of take the stigma out of it, I think, especially for pain that just won't go away. There's a lot of stigma tied to mm -hmm. that um, and it can really happen to anybody. Yeah. That's a great word and great encouragement. Um, there's so much that chronic struggles are stigmatized in general. We don't want to be labeled. We don't want to be inconvenient. We don't want to be missed out. Broken. Weak, broken. Yeah. And so, yeah, um, I think we've come a long ways in mental health. Um, but yeah, pain, I think, is one where to either fix it or deal with it and, or try to fix it. And it, but to understand it from this perspective that it's not necessarily something that needs to be quote unquote fixed, needs to be understood and acknowledged and cared for. Um, and if you have it, it's not because you're weak, broken and you're doing something wrong. It's because mm -hmm. yeah. your brain's protecting you. Right. And that's it. You know, yep. And we have to figure out why. Yeah, we have to figure out why your brain's protecting you so much. Yeah, and if there's trauma in your background, then it's like, of course, your brain's protecting you. Like it's learned to protect you, and now it's adapting to protect you in this situation this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, and just seeing it from that perspective again, like I work with a lot of people that addictions, like that's an ad adaptation that your brain's trying to protect you. It's not helpful, but in the moment. Is helpful in what it's supposed to protect you from, not in health, but with pain, it's also adapting and protecting you from something. It's not helping you be active, but it's protecting you from this other fear that it doesn't want you to experience. Right. And it's often about at that point, kind of, I mean, so the good news, right, is that neuroplasticity or sort of this this learning of our nervous system, it yes. can go in that negative direction and overprotect us, but we can teach it to go the other way with education and um, new experiences. Yes. And, you know, a, a lot of overcoming chronic pain or reducing the flare-ups that interfere with life so much is the recalibrating of the nervous system. So how mm -hmm. to kind of, you know, turn down that sensitivity of your nervous system, reduce that perceived threat and the danger messages to the brain and, and replace it with messages of safety. 
and um that that's yeah. kind of it's like if you can figure out how to retrain your brain that's the hack yeah it's the hack yeah. for chronic pain yeah yeah mm. that's Love it. that's our, our growing our growing work and it's so powerful I feel like it's the best surprise for us of the decade <laughs> maybe of I don't even know it's just like no way this is applied neuroplasticity it's not just theory it actually the brain can actually adapt and go in the positive direction of helping you have the flourishing full um joy-filled life that everyone longs for like the brain's a massive player yeah. and I love that we can leverage that the power of the changing brain to do that it's just so there's so much hope in it and to mm -hmm. see it play out in real time for people is like man this is sweet <laughs> like, that's so well so said cool. I, I totally agree 100 mm percent -hmm. wow so is there anything um I, I don't want to take more of your time than we have, but I would just love to hear if there's anything more you want to add. I know you you specifically work with women and we'd love to hear like your heart behind that, why you focus on women. And yeah, maybe some last principles that you would love to throw in on that are important when recovering. Yeah, um, you know, I think, I guess I, I, I focus on women, you know, there's this really old kind of pain model. It's called the onion model uh, by John Loser, and it describes the pain experience as sort of being four layers of an onion mm -hmm. uh, with the inner layer being that physical injury, moving outward kind of pain as this unpleasant experience, moving outward that suffering and emotional response. And then when you get to kind of the outside of the onion, it's the, the nonverbal expressions of pain or the way that someone presents themselves to the outside world. And then outside of that onion is our society, the system, the outside world. And I think that the outside world of that onion for women is full of just a bunch of longstanding issues. And, yeah. you know, I uh, sometimes here, I kind of go into a brief history about the word hysteria, mm -hmm. but just kind of this idea that these really common um, symptoms that are synonymous with normal female, you know, sexuality mm -hmm. and functioning or, you know, was really um, taken out of context. And I think it still exists. It's just sort of it's alive and well, but sort of rebranded now. So you can see unexplained symptoms that might've been labeled as hysteria before, now psychogenic, psychosomatic, med medically unexplained. So I think that this, this idea, you know, med conventional medicine kind of approaches pain in this funny way where they feel like the mind and the body are, are separate when we mm -hmm. know that they're continuously and unquestionably connected yeah. but that if a physical symptom can't be explained physiologically then it must be attributed to our psyche and this default attribution is really dangerous i think particularly for women who are being made to feel that pain is all in their head when in fact pain is always both yeah. um, there's a lot of gender bias around chronic pain um hmm. you know so women report more pain they're less likely to get their pain treated they're less likely to be given a diagnosis. Um, 
they're less likely to be studied in clinical trials. They, you know, and then due to societal expectations, women face all of these complex demands and they're trying to manage their pain and the demands of their households or their role as a spouse or partner or mother simultaneously. They feel mistrusted and psychologized by their providers. Um, and interesting, you know, the appearance of women with chronic pain is judged by doctors. So you're either looking too good to be sick or unreliable if you don't look good enough, right? And wow. so, you know, what are we communicating to women when this is their experience at the doctor? We're giving them experiences that cause them shame, misunderstanding, distress, trauma, sadness, invalidation, um, a fear of speaking up. They're, they become a woman unempowered. And when you bring these feelings into the cycle of ongoing pain, it just adds more distress, more pain, um, more sensitivity to the nervous system. And sorry, I'm going on and on because I feel really strong. I, you know, I think That's beyond good. chronic <laughs> beyond chronic pain and sort of gender bias in healthcare, going back to that outside of the onion, the environment that surrounds it, I think we have to appreciate the burnout that women in particular have been feeling, especially over the last couple of years. So many women I know, high-performing, you know, women, those that are mothers, especially, people are exhausted, they're struggling, or they're even broken, feeling broken. And, you know, we just had the pandemic during which the vast majority of unpaid labor was being done by mothers, by women, they sort of, I, you know, I'm here in America. I, I think we became America's social safety net for the past couple of years. And so, mm -hmm. you know, why do I provide education for women? Because they just are not getting it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Women represent a huge portion of the chronic pain population. They deserve to understand what pain is, how it works, what's happening in their bodies and what to do about it. And they deserve to be validated, trusted, mm -hmm. heard and understood. Yes. Um, and so that's, that's why, um, I have, I try to provide a lot of that for free, like I said, because I think so many uh, people, women and everyone deserve to have this information, this education. Um, so I, I have a lot on Instagram at Dr. Anna Redmond. I do a free webinar and I'm gonna be doing my last one for a while, um, December 12th at 11 a.m. Pacific time. So people can sign up to that um, at links.dranaredmond.com forward slash webinar. Um, and then in terms of, I, I do have a course that I'll be running the education for live in January. And this course is really just to kind of like give women a deep foundational understanding of why they still hurt and then teach them how to use that brain science to give them the education they need to kind of basically redesign their day to mm -hmm. get through it without the crashes and, and kind of redesign their lives to match what they really want. Um, so that's kind of what I'm all about. That's why I chose women. Um, yeah. Ooh, I love that. Amazing. <laughs> Definitely got goosebumps as you were talking about Seriously. this. Um, yeah, how needed this is, uh, specifically targeting women. Um, wow, just thank you so much. I We could not admire or honor your your work more. This is so incredibly needed. I left uh, the mainstream medicine um, like what five years ago after working in the ER for 10 years and I just left like so discouraged about how few people were getting the help they needed. You know if it was like emergent, yes, 
If it was, oh, they need uh, the cath lab because they're having a heart attack or they need surgery to take their appendix out, great, awesome, wonderful. But then all of these people that fell through the cracks, um, they didn't fit in a perfect box or even they did fit in a box. They had the surgeries and they came back still with pain, still with problems. And I was so, I'm so highly empathetic that I was just dying in that setting, not feeling like I could actually help people. And so like to see other providers and other um, folks in this big, you know, the bigger healthcare field, including mental, physical, all the things to see the information being disseminated and people having resources is so encouraging to me. And it like has brought back life to a part of me that just kind of withered away of like, okay, and powerlessness of like, I cannot help and compassion fatigue and moral injury and burnout because wanting so badly to help people, but it just feeling like impossible seeing people doing it and being people that do it. It's incredible. It's such a high. I totally have similar experiences. I think I totally agree. Hmm. Wow. Well, thank you for your time, Dr. Redman. Um, so informative, so helpful, so good. Um, and we'll put links in the, the, uh, show description. Um, so go check out Dr. Redman, all of her, the, all of her things, her website, her webinars, as you can see, just getting a glimpse this hour, she's got a lot of information. Well, I'm so glad we connected and that we're um, <clears throat> networking with like-minded people is just a thrill. Yeah. So we're so glad, <clears throat> yeah, to introduce you to our audience and find her on Instagram. And um, yeah, it's wonderful. Carry on the wonderful work you're doing. Thank you so much. You as well. While it is a joy to provide our podcast content as a source of life enrichment, please note that information shared is not intended to replace or contradict any professional therapy or medical advice.